and said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And that we have the privilege to be able to look back upon what John saw in that moment and worship and praise and delight ourselves in the goodness of Christ, our Lamb who has given himself so that we might live. It's a joy and a a privilege to me to be with you again tonight. Thank you so much for coming out and being here and being so encouraging and supportive of uh, my efforts this week. I appreciate that so much, but I'm grateful that you're here, uh, not just you being here tonight, but that this church is here and that you are doing the work that you're doing and being the people that you are, being a testimony to the world of the truth of God's word and the wonder of God's son. And all of our lives should be ultimately devoted to what John's was in that moment when he pointed out Jesus and said, not me, but him. And soon all of us will go the way of all the earth and Jesus will still be Lord. And for generations to come, I hope that our legacy will be that others will magnify and glory in and experience the salvation that's found in Jesus Christ. And so give your lives to that. I know that's what you're doing, and I encourage you to continue on in the days to come. Well, we are in a series of, we are in a series of lessons uh, this week, each weeknight that's focused on the idea that we looked at last night from Psalm 42, when the waves keep coming. He speaks there about the The waves just kept on coming, and it was relentless. And sometimes life feels that way. It's one difficult struggle after another. And about the time we feel like we're getting our footing, the next wave breaks over us, and it can get us down. So we want to think about how we can keep from going under when life gets rough. And we're looking at four specific truths that God gives us as flotation devices that can buoy us up and keep us on the surface even when life is really rough. Last night we talked about why the world is the way that it is, that it's not ideal and it's not what God originally intended it to be, but there are reasons why the world is the way that it is. And then we're going to look tomorrow night at this truth, that God's not indifferent. He's not indifferent to your suffering. He's not indifferent to your trial. The particular hardship that you're going through doesn't mean that God has turned his back on you. And then we'll wrap up on Thursday night with a lesson that will focus on this. This life's not ultimate. This life is not all that there is. And when we have those three truths, and then we add to it the one that we're going to focus on tonight, we really do have a support system that can keep us from going under when life gets rough. Tonight, I want to talk to you about the fact that you and I do not have to do this alone. We do not have to do this alone. This thing called life, these trials that come our way, we are not on our own when we are confronted with them. I don't know about you, but when I'm, when I'm confronted with, with good news, my reaction is to share it immediately. If there are people in my physical presence, I'll start talking, and if not, I'll get the phone out. I'm not a big social media person, so I just get the phone out and I start calling friends and family or texting the people that I know and love and saying, hey, you'll never, you'll never guess what happened. Here's the good news. And yet when things are not good, when I get bad news or something goes terribly wrong, 
my initial reaction tends to be in the opposite direction. Maybe you're different than me, but I tend to with, withdraw, sort of step back, uh, go into the, the basement or close my office door. I like to meditate and think on what's happening and sort of compose myself personally before I see anybody else. And I think that that can be a, a healthy way to, to deal with some of the struggles that we face in life. But that can go on too long, and I, and I think we're going to see that in tonight's lesson as we study about an Old Testament character in a few moments. So what about you? What do you do when the world stops turning? Remember that Alan Jackson song after 9-1-1? Where were you when the world stopped turning? And he goes through and describes all these different ways that people did react to that tragedy. And what about you? Do you retreat into solitude? Maybe you're like me, you, you do that and you try to collect your thoughts. And, and sometimes I think maybe I do it because I, I don't want to feel like I'm a burden to somebody else. If I've got bad news, then why bring you down with my troubles? But if I were honest, I'd have to admit that sometimes the reason I don't go and share my struggles with other people is either because of my pride or simply because I'd rather sit in the dark and feel sorry for myself. The truth of the matter is that self-pity and feeling that nobody could understand me, nobody gets me, nobody could understand my trouble and my trial, and nobody's ever been through what I'm going through, and I'm all in this by myself, is a bit of a pity party, whether we like to admit it or not. And it's not necessary for us to do that. We don't have to bear these burdens and trials of life alone. But most of us are in some way or another like that. We're a little bit like the character in the Old Testament known uh, to us as Elijah. Remember Elijah? A lot of preachers have done series on the life of Elijah, and we're going to focus on one particular moment in his life. And it's just that. It's just a moment. It's not the whole story. But let me give you a little bit of the big picture before we zoom in to this particular episode in his life. You may remember that he was a prophet of God in a rather dark time in Israel's history. The people of Israel had turned away from the God who had brought them out of Egypt and into the promised land and forsaken him in order to pursue idols, particularly the idols of Baal and his female consort, as some people understand it, uh, uh, the Asherah, as it's referred to. And so the people were divided to some extent in their loyalties. It wasn't as if they were saying, well, we have renounced Yahweh as our God and embraced Baal as our God, but they were sort of halting between two opinions. They were like a bird that, that's on one branch and then flies over to another one and then flies back and he just can't seem to decide where he wants to land. So they had sort of a divided loyalty between the God who had brought them out of Egypt and this foreign deity who had been imported and was supported by Jezebel, the queen of, 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 the, of, the, of the nation of Israel, married to Ahab, the king. And it was during that period of time that Elijah had the difficult task of representing God and speaking on God's behalf to the people of Israel. And it got so bad that uh, Jezebel and Ahab began to prosecute and persecute the loyalist of, 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 of Yahweh. And so many of them went into hiding. Many of them were uh, executed. 
And all of them were suffering to some extent, and Elijah included. And that's when Elijah did something that's rather interesting to me. He prayed this prayer, an odd prayer. He prayed that it would not rain. And the reason that he prayed that is because he was a student of the scriptures, and he understood that Moses in the uh, Pentateuch had, had said, God had said through Moses, that if the people turn from me and serve idols, then the heavens will not bring forth their rain and the land will not bring forth its produce. And God would do this as a means of, of rousing this, uh, this, this kingdom to its senses so that they would recognize their need and dependence upon God and hopefully turn back to him. And so, again, Elijah, familiar with what Moses had, had said God would do, asked God to be true to his word, keep his promise. You said if we got to a state like we are actually in, that you would cause it to quit raining. So I'm asking you to cause the rain to cease. And the amazing thing is that in, in keeping with Elijah's prayer and God's promise, the rain stopped. And what was it? I believe about three and a half years, it says, it went without rain. Now, I've been through some drought, and I know in this part of the country, you sometimes experience some pretty extensive drought. But have you ever seen it not rain for three and a half years? And in an arid place and hot place like the land of Israel, that would have been devastating, and indeed it was. And yet, that brought things to a point in which Elijah was able to confront Ahab, the king, and say, hey, let's have a contest where we gather together on Mount Carmel and all the prophets of Baal, bring all 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah, and, and I will come as the lone representative of God. We'll set up these two altars one to Baal and one to Yahweh, and whichever of those two God, gods answers with fire and consumes the sacrifice will be acknowledged by the people as God. And everyone from Ahab on down said, that's a good plan. And so you may remember the story, the prophets of Baal went first, and they cried out to Baal from uh, morning till evening for him to answer them and, and, and it got so desperate that toward the end of the day, it says the prophets of Baal, as was their custom, began to cut themselves. Cut themselves, literally until the blood, it says, gushed out. And I think that the idea behind that is they, they believed that Baal was, was so hard-hearted and indifferent to their plight and their pleas that it would require something outrageous on their part to, to get his attention. And yet in, spac, in, in spite of all of their exploits, Baal was utterly silent. Nothing happened. And then Elijah's opportunity came at the time of the evening sacrifice, and he called out upon God and he said, answer me now, Lord, so that they may know, one, that I am a true prophet of yours, and secondly, that you and you alone are the God of Israel. And you may recall that God answered Elijah's prayer and the fire from heaven fell and consumed the sacrifice and not only the sacrifice, but the water that Elijah had called for to be poured upon the sacrifice. Three times he called for water to be poured out upon the sacrifice and all the wood around it. Which it struck me when I was preparing for this lesson that that had to have been the most 
precious commodity in the land of Israel in those days. Can you imagine the waste of water? And yet God consumes the sacrifice, the soaked sacrifice, and vindicates Elijah and and vindicates his own name. And all of the people said, yes, we acknowledge now that Yahweh is God. They rounded up the 450 prophets of Baal, the 400 prophets of Asherah, and they took them down to the, to the river's edge and they executed the false prophets. And so Elijah was having what we would literally describe as a mountaintop experience. He had called down fire from heaven. Now that's a pretty cool trick. He had literally called down fire from heaven. He had ended, then after this he prays that it would rain, and after three and a half years of drought, it rains. He calls down fire from heaven. He calls down rain from heaven. He is victorious over 850 opponents to one, and he wins that battle. And then he sends the king of Israel back home to tell his wife Jezebel the news. And Elijah's feeling pretty strong. Things are going his way, and it is, again, a truly mountaintop experience. But isn't it the truth that so often when you're just at the apex of a situation, that that's when the bottom can just fall out? And maybe that's happened in your life as well. You've had things really going your way, and everything was just lining up perfectly as you had planned, and then the news came, and everything went sideways. You still remember the words that were spoken to you when the devastating wave broke over you. For Elijah, it was that Ahab, though weak, was able to be manipulated, not manipulated, but but able to be influenced by Elijah to to acknowledge Yahweh. When he got home to his wife Jezebel, somebody said the last choice that Ahab ever actually made was when he said, I do. Uh, maybe some other husbands can, res, uh, can, 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 can sympathize. But when he got home to Jezebel, she wasn't having any of it. Instead, she sent out a message to Elijah and throughout the land that what Elijah had done to her 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah were going to be, would be accomplished on Elijah before the day ended. She said something like, took a self-maledictory oath. She said, may it be, may the gods deal ever so severely with me if you are not dead before the day's end. And it's kind of interesting because in spite of the fact that everything had been going so well for Elijah, when he heard this news, it just completely upended him. I think he looked back on all that he had accomplished and he just felt like it's, it's all been for nothing. All the things that I've done that have seemed to turn the tide, it seems now with this issue from on high that my life has a, has a price on it. There's a, there's a bounty on my head and now I'm going to be hunted down and killed just like they were. It's, it's all been for nothing. It's, it's a failure. And so he begins to run. He dismisses his servant and he begins to run. Then he runs into the wilderness where God meets with him and then he runs further until he goes all the way down to Mount Horeb, where he enters into a cave. And there he begins in isolation to get lost in his own head. 
and begins to think over all that he has done and all that he has suffered and, and how none of it has actually changed anything. And so I love then what happens next. He's in this cave all by himself in a deserted place in full retreat and in complete depression. And the Lord comes to him and says, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And then it says that as he stood there at the mouth of this cave, that a powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks. I don't know, I don't know exactly what this is, some hurricane or tornadic Force winds are just beating against the side of this mountain till literally the rocks on the side of the mountain are falling off. And yet it says that for all of this fierce storm, the Lord was not in the wind. You know, we look for the Lord in the powerful things, in the big moments, when the fire's falling from the sky or when the winds are raging and something momentous is happening, when we feel like we're moving and shaking, that's the Lord's hand in this, and we talk in those terms. But God's trying to tell Elijah something, I think, about these, what appear to us to be big moments are not always the voice of the Lord. And it certainly was not in the wind. And after the wind, it says that there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. Have you ever been in an earthquake? I've never, I've never experienced an earthquake until I moved to Kentucky, of all places. I didn't know they had earthquakes in Kentucky, but every now and then, there's some minor earthquakes. And I'll remember a number of years ago, waking up in the middle of the night, and the bed was just moving, and things were rattling on the <clears throat> furniture. And I had no idea what was going on, and it took me the longest time to, to figure out that we were having a minor earthquake. And it's a rather disorienting feeling, and Elijah experiences something of this, but again, in this earth-moving moment, the Lord is not there, not communicating any sort of discernible message in this, in this natural phenomenon. And so after the earthquake came a fire, and I don't again know exactly what that means, but I've sort of imagined in my mind that you have some kind of a raging brush fire, like we sometimes see on the news in California or last year in Australia where just millions of acres are just being scorched and the fire is raging through. And maybe from the mouth of this cave looking down on the valley below, Elijah witnesses some, again, amazing natural phenomenon. And so, again, we're told that even in this, the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came, a gentle whisper, or as the King James says, a still, small voice. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, Elijah, what are you doing here? Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah has an answer for God's question. And he puts it like this in verse 14. He says, well, Lord, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. 
The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword, and I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. You know, I think that that can happen to any of us if we spend too much time alone, too much time in the cave. When the waves start coming and things go wrong and we retreat to our solitude to think things through, that's fine. But if we stay in that state for too long and we start playing the record in our mind over and over and over again, we get stuck in our heads, we get stuck in the past, we get stuck in what's happened to us. Some of us are so stuck in what's happened to us years, maybe even decades ago, that we cannot move forward in our life because of what has happened. Or because of the disappointment that we have in how we thought life was going to go, or how we thought things should turn out for us. And Elijah just looks at the situation and he says, Lord, I have done everything you've asked me to do. I've been courageous. I've been bold. I've made sacrifices. And yet all of it has been apparently for nothing because I'm the only one left. And now there is a price on my head as well. And so God responds in verse 15 and says, Elijah, go back. Go back the way you came and anoint Hazael king over Aram. Anoint Jehu king over Israel. And anoint Elisha to succeed you as a prophet. And then he says in verse um, 18, There are yet 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. So what he's telling Elijah is, I want you to re-engage. I want you to reconnect. And he wants him to remind himself that I don't have to do this alone, and I'm not in this alone. He had convinced himself that he was the only faithful child of God left in the world, that nobody else was really concerned with doing what was right or honoring God or serving him out of a sincere heart. And he felt like that excused him for running away. And he felt like the fact that there has, there's still adversity, that there's still danger after all that I've been through is just not fair. It's just too much to ask. And all of that got stuck in his mind And he felt like he was justified in shirking his duty and his responsibility. The Lord doesn't upbraid him. The Lord understands human weakness in his frame. But he does not indulge Elijah either. And I think that that's what we have to do with ourselves when we're suffering, when we're going through difficult times. There's going to be a time when we need a retreat, when we need a reprieve when we need to be restored. But that is what the retreat is for, restoration, so that we might go back and re-engage. As long as we're living in this world, God has a plan and he has a purpose for us and we need to be engaged with it and joined with other people in doing so. God reminds Elijah of what his duty is and he encourages him to go back and get involved in it again. I believe that that's a message for somebody here tonight. 
that there's someone who is in a cave feeling isolated and lonely and like nobody understands you or gets what you're going through. The waves started coming and you retreated. Your waves may be the trials that you're facing, the conflicts that you're involved with, the fact that there's somebody who's out to get you in some way or another, the temptations even that you're continuing to face and struggle with. But in the stillness of this moment, tonight, or at some other point, when you have the opportunity to reflect and get alone with God as Elijah did in the cave, you need to ask yourself, is the presence of the Lord passing by? And is he whispering, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? It's time for you to go back and to reconnect because I still have a purpose for you. There's a purpose for your pain and I have a plan for your life and I want you to get back involved in what it is that I'm doing in the world. And no matter how wounded you are, no matter how much trouble you've been through, no matter how difficult the way forward may be, I believe that in your heart, God has placed a tension where you can look at things in the Word of God and see how they ought to be. And you can look at things in the world and see how they are. And you can notice that there's a difference and see that yourself, you yourself are somewhat of a, of a transformational figure that you can help bring what ought to be as it's revealed in God's Word to pass in how things really are. There's something that breaks your heart. There's something that moves you. There's something that inspires you to to advance the purposes and kingdom of God in this world. And it's time for you to get back involved in doing that. It's time to step out of the cave and listen to God ask you the question, what are you doing here? I've got something for you to do. Well, you might say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not in a cave. I'm, I'm at church. I'm here tonight. It's Tuesday night of a gospel meeting. I mean, who, who goes to church on Tuesday night? I'm here. So I'm obviously activated and engaged. But, but you know as well as I do that it's sometimes easy to be lost in a crowd, to be present but not really engaged. As we talked about Sunday, to be, to be a attender but not a member of a congregation. Or maybe you simply feel unnoticed and unsure of how or who to talk to about what it is that you're struggling with. And you just need to make a move to ask someone to talk. And we need to do this because the best life preserver that we can have in the rough water of life is strong ties to other Christians. Listen, If you listen only to the voices in your head long enough, you will wear yourself down. You need someone else speaking into the negative feedback loop of your mind, breaking that negative loop and reminding you of the goodness of God, of his purposes for your life and encouraging you and building you up. And the only way you're going to get there is if you open yourself up and engage with somebody that you know and that you trust. One of the elders, one of their wives, one of the other members of this congregation that you have confidence in, that you can talk to. We need to be there for one another, but we also have to share with one another what it is that we're struggling with. 
You know, when I think of the people in the Bible for whom the waves start, the waves just kept coming. There's, there's, there's few people that I can think of more than the Apostle Paul. So we've got Elijah in the Old Testament, all that he endured. The Apostle Paul is another one that really reminds me of, of someone who just continued to suffer one blow after another. And how he kept going is sometimes beyond me. But as I thought about that in this lesson, how did Paul keep going when it got so rough? And I found an answer to that question in an unlikely place. And it's a bit of a risk because this isn't one of those passages of Scripture that's just like, uh, you know, really motivational. It's one of the passages or chapters in the Bible that we tend to just kind of skip over because it seems boring. But in this particular context in which we're discussing tonight, the importance of our connections with one another when we're going through a hard time, this passage really shines. It's basically just a list of names. And it's found in the book of Romans, that book that just soars to theological heights like no other book ever written for that matter. And yet at the end, it comes into this very practical and personal connection that Paul shared with so many people that kept him afloat when times were rough. I can tell you, in, in 2020, when, when things were at their worst last year, the thing that just kept running through my mind is remember when I would preach into a camera. <laughs> it's the hardest thing in the world. <laughs> as trying to remember that there are actually people on the other side of that and remember why we do what we're doing. And that's what keeps you going sometimes when everything else gives way and you can't, you can't, you know, heaven is, is coming, but it just seems like a long, long way off. And in the meantime, what do you do? Well, you need to learn to lean on each other. And so with that, let's just read through the 16th chapter of the book of Romans, and we'll wrap up. Paul, writing from Corinth, most likely, which in and of itself would have been enough to break most preachers, says to them, I want to commend to you our sister Phoebe. She's a servant of the church in Sincrea. And I ask you to receive her. Some suggest that she may have been the one carrying the letter that Paul wrote, Romans itself. Receive her, I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help that she may need from you for she has been a benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. Do you ever have anybody that you look at and say, that's my co-worker in Christ Jesus? We stand arm to arm and shoulder to shoulder facing a difficult task, and we are in this together, and he, that's the way he thinks about these people, and so greet them. And he adds, they risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Paul thinking back about people, their conversion, and the significance of it. 
Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. <laughs> they are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Great, greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend, Statius. Greet Apellus, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. There are people here whose lives have stood tests. Maybe people who've been through what it is you're facing now. I can't think of anything more reassuring and encouraging to any of us than to reach out to someone or to find someone who's been where we are and made it through to the other side to throw us a lifeline to get us where they are today. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of uh, Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who worked hard in the Lord. So many women mentioned in this list. You know, Paul was supposed to be the, the great woman hater. And yet how can you read this and not see how he loved and how he valued the work of his sisters in Christ and their labor in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother who has been a mother to me too. I've had so many mothers in the Lord, especially in my younger years of preaching, who've reached out to me, but sometimes you've got to reach up to them and Again, I just want us all to see the importance of connecting with each other. How did Paul get through what he got through? I think we're, we're seeing that here. Greet, ah, these are some tough names. Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the Lord's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And all the churches of Christ send their greetings. The modern world that we are living in is isolating. We have thousands of friends, hundreds or thousands in some instances of friends on social media, but true, truly close connections. People who we can lean the weight of our lives on. People that we can look to as family and friends and friends who stick closer even than a brother in the flesh. And people are better than Google. Google may give you the right answer, but it doesn't come with the wisdom and the connection of another human being. And people are better than Amazon Prime and another order that you can place that someone will drop on your doorstep. And people are better than Netflix and people are better than your cave that you are tempted, if you're like me, to withdraw into when times are tough. If the presence of God is passing by, now is your chance to hear him asking you the question, what are you doing here? If you've stepped out of the race, if you've forgotten about the calling on your life as a Christian to be a witness to the world of Christ, if you've disengaged yourself from the community of brothers and sisters, which is God's lifeline to you and support in this world, then he's calling you to step out, to go back, and to re-engage, and to remember 
you don't have to do this alone. If you're not a Christian tonight, we want to encourage you to come and become a part of this family where you can find the support and the strength that you need to go forward in life. And if we can help you in that regard, we encourage you to come and let us know while we stand and while we sing.